Okay, so the next section is the summary of what the play session will be like. We're actually getting into the specific details of what your 30 minute play times will look like. But before we turn the page, there is one reminder from last week, which is the be with attitude section. And those are what we talked about in length last time, in depth last time. And those are the I'm here, I hear you, I understand, and I care. But as a reminder as well, it is not I must make you happy, it is not I will always agree, and it is not I will solve your problems. But everything about this training circles back and brings us back to the be with attitudes. So just a brief reminder there so that it's at the forefront of your mind each week. And we will skip the homework and come back to that at the end so you can move past the first page and the second page because that's your note sheet and you will come upon the basic principles of the play sessions sheet and that's where we get into the specific information for this week. So we're going to talk about the first four basic principles of the play sessions. So this is basically setting the stage for what you need to be mindful of and what you need to be purposeful about as you're conducting these 30 minute special play times with your child. So the first is you're going to set the stage by structuring an atmosphere, excuse me, in which the child feels free to determine how he will use that session. Essentially, you are creating an environment where the child is able to do whatever they would like to do in that 30 minutes within boundaries, but at the beginning of the play session, they don't know that boundaries exist. So they're going to lead, like we talked about last time, you're going to follow, and you're going to show interest and observe what they're playing through, what they are doing, how they're doing it, what emotions they're expressing. You are going to just be keenly aware and, ob and observant about what they're doing. However, you're not going to make suggestions and you're not going to ask questions. Remember last time we talked about we can reflect feelings without asking questions and we're also not going to make suggestions. Let me pause there for a moment because there have been a lot of videos that I've watched of play sessions where the parent isn't particularly thrilled with what is happening. So I recently worked with a mom who she had never allowed her child to have toy weapons. So he had never had a toy gun, a toy knife, a toy sword, handcuffs, any of those things. And as you'll see in a moment, that's part of the toy kit for the play sessions. So he's exploring all of these weapons that he's never had access to before. And she really wasn't too thrilled. <laughs> so she was really hoping that he would play with something different. And so one of the suggestions that she made was, I wonder if you'd like to play with, and I forget what she offered, maybe the jump rope or something, but she was trying to redirect the play because she wasn't particularly thrilled with what that play session looked like. So you are going to allow it to unfold however it unfolds and there are no suggestions to be made and there are no questions to be asked. You will, however, actively join in the play when invited. And so if your child says, I want you to be the cop, or 
I want you to throw the ball back and forth with me or we're going to play in the dollhouse and you're going to be the mom and I'm going to be the child. Whatever that looks like, you will join in when asked and invited while being sensitive to the fact that it's still the child's play. So you basically will pretend that you don't have any answers. So in other words, when the child says, how do you use this? Or what's this for? Or what's this called? Or I don't know how to open this or all of those things that they will say, you are going to respond and reflect, but you're not going to have any answers. Now this particular training uses the word playing dumb and I actually prefer not to say that. So I will typically say, you are not an expert and you have no more knowledge than the child does in that 30 minutes. So the point of that is your child's going to make their own decisions and they're going to find their own solutions. And that's extremely powerful for them. So that's why we pretend that we don't really know what anything is called or how it works or how to open things and all of those questions that will be asked. We allow them to sort that out for themselves. Okay, second principle is your major goal and task for this 30 minutes is just to show empathy. What you are wanting to do is understand their thoughts, their feelings, their wishes, their needs, their desires, their fears, their dislikes, their likes, anything that they want to express. You want to be able to try to understand what those are by working hard to see and experience what the child is doing through the child's eyes. So one of the early principles in psychology classes and in counseling classes is other oriented. And what that is, is putting yourself in someone else's shoes. That's essentially what you're going to be doing during the 30 minute playtime, trying your best to put yourself in your child's shoes and see the play, see the world, see everything that's going on through their eyes. You will essentially do that by communicating the be with attitudes. So that's the really important operationalizing piece of this is you will communicate be with attitudes and all of those other things will be accomplished. I'm here, I hear you, I understand and I care. That allows you to see things through the child's eyes and experience their world. So first you're going to set the stage where the child can be free and you are not an expert. Second, you're going to empathize with the child, see the play session through their eyes. Third, Communicate this back to the child. So what does that look like? You are going to reflect back to the reflective responding that we talked about last time. Remember I told you there are three. Here are the three ways that you do that. Last week we did reflecting feelings, which was one of the three. Here are the other two so that you have the full picture of what reflective responding looks like. So the first is verbally describing what the child is playing. You're playing with the jump rope. You're stacking the blocks. You're jumping up and down. You're shooting the bad guy. See how it's very similar to reflecting feeling process starting with you. And then you literally just describe what they're doing. Say what you see is a good way to put that. So what you see the child doing, you say it. That is tracking behavior. That is one of the reflective responses, tracking behavior. You're telling them what their behavior is. 
you are lining up the silverware for the picnic, you're setting up an army battle, you are playing with the family in the house. Whatever they do, you tell them what they're doing. So that's tracking behavior. Second is reflecting what the child is saying. So in that scenario, you say back to the child what the child has said to you. Now, the danger there is you do not want to sound like a robot and you don't want to sound like a parrot. So when the child says, I'm going to stab the bobo. If you say, you're going to stab the bobo, they're only going to tolerate that two or three times before they bristle at the fact that you're just copying them word for word. I've actually had kids, and even though I don't copy kids word for word, I've even had kids, even when I'm summarizing and paraphrasing and condensing, they'll say, stop copying me. So you definitely have to walk the line of telling them what they're saying to you to communicate that you're understanding, but not repeating it in such a way that it sounds exactly the same. So essentially what you want to do is take information in and basically condense, summarize, or paraphrase to communicate the same idea back in not so concrete of a way. So let me show you what that would look like. That might be the child says, I'm going to see how many times I can hit the ball with the paddle. And you could say, oh, you want to count how many times you can do it. Or the child says, I'm going to see if I can make a pizza with the Play-Doh. Oh, you're going to use the pizza? No, you're going to use the Play-Doh to make a pizza. So see how you modify it and change it enough that it does not sound exactly the same, but you're still communicating that you heard what was said. That is called reflecting content. So three reflective responses. The first is tracking behavior, saying what you see them doing. Second is reflecting content, saying what they're saying to you. And then the third, which is what we did last week, is reflecting feelings, where they express an emotion and you communicate back to them what emotion you saw them communicate to you. So all of those are to communicate your understanding of what is happening in the play session back to the child. It means that you're present, it means that you're communicating be with attitudes, and it means that you're fully invested and interested in the playtime. So moving on, the final principle of these play sessions is you are going to be clear and firm about the few limits that are needed. However, Limits are needed only when they're needed. So at the start of the play sessions going into this process, the child will not know that there are any limits that exist in the playtime because you will only set limits when they're needed, not preemptively or beforehand. So I want to share a quick story. When I was a child, we lived in right on the Clearwater Largo line, which is in Florida, and my grandparents lived about 35 or 40 minutes south in St. Petersburg. And my grandparents were the family that you weren't allowed to walk into their house with shoes on. You had to take the shoes off before you walked inside. You literally could have eaten off my grandparents' kitchen floor. That's how clean it was. You never walked on the carpet in anything but socks. 
if they saw a piece of dirt or a piece of grass or a piece of lint, still to this day, they're 87 and 90 and they still do this if I go to their house. If they see anything on the floor, a piece of grass, a piece of lint, dust, doesn't matter, they will pick it up and put it in their pocket. And now I've never asked what they do with what's in their pocket at the end of the day. I don't know if that just ends up in the washing machine or if they actually empty their pockets and throw it in the garbage at night. I don't know. But my point is their house was immaculately clean. My grandmother collected Lennox. I don't know if you're familiar, but it's like a fancy ceramic line. And so she would have her Lennox vases and her Lennox bowls and whatever. And they had custom made plastic covers for their furniture in the living room. So literally those, the couch and the chair and whatever else was there had never been sat in except if plastic was between the human and the furniture. So I'm trying to help you understand that was the environment going down to my grandparents' house. They are wonderful. They were loving and they were kind. So it wasn't like a stuffy, you know, unloving kind of environment, but they were not used to having kids there and my mom, in hindsight, my mom was always worried about bringing us down there because she was worried that we were gonna do something that was going to mess up their house. And I remember as a kid, we would get in the car and we would start the 35, 40 minute drive down to St. Petersburg. And at some point in the midst of the drive, my mom would turn around and look at my brother and me in the back seat and start laying out the expectations. So, you know, when you get there, you're gonna make sure that you take your shoes off and you're not gonna run around and be wild and you're not gonna get crazy in there and you're not gonna go into the living room where there's the breakable stuff. You need to go into the back room where you guys can just, you know, sit and do a puzzle or do something and, and do not take drinks on the carpet and you're not gonna have any food. And, and I remember hating going down to my grandparents' house. And it wasn't that I didn't wanna go. I love my grandparents. It was that I didn't like being lectured to about all the things that I wasn't allowed to do when I was there. And as an adult, and now that I train this, and now that I understand this principle that limits are needed only when they're needed, I know why that bothered me so much. Because the implication was, she thought we were going to break rules. And she thought we were going to do things that we weren't supposed to do. And she thought we were going to do things that were going to be problematic for my grandparents and their home. And in truth, we knew all those rules. We'd been down there tons of times. We knew we weren't allowed to do those things. And had she said nothing, I suspect we would have been obedient because we knew those were the expectations. But preemptively going through all of the limits and all of the rules, there's a subtle implication that she didn't trust that we were gonna do what we knew to do. And that is why the freedom and the environment is created during these playtimes that the child can do and say anything they need to. And that's why, because they need to feel free to work through things. Now, should something come up where you have to set a limit, you do, but they don't know that ahead of time. So you want to make sure that they feel very free to do anything, but should limits need to be set, they would be for these reasons. You and the child both need to be safe. So any behavior that would make you or your child unsafe, that would be a limit that is set. The toys cannot be broken on purpose. That would be another limit that is set. And there's a 30 minute time frame for the play session. So your safety, the toys not being broken on purpose, and there's a 30 minute time cap. So those were, are the reasons you would set limits in the playtime. 
and again only when they're needed but they are consistently applied across sessions in other words if week one you set a limit that the toys are not for breaking on purpose that limit is consistently enforced throughout the course of the 10 weeks it doesn't change week to week so we will actually go through how exactly to set limits in week four so we're not quite there yet but that was just a precursor to help you understand that limits are only needed when they're needed and you will learn a very specific method for setting those limits but the child does not know that limits exist until you need to set one so those are the basic principles for the play sessions i think that will give you a pretty good handle on what this looks like and we will wrap up this section and move on to the goals of the play sessions next